today on Against the Grain. Is a world of nation-states desirable? If ultra-nationalism is pernicious, are some forms of nationalism benign? And are national liberation struggles to be applauded and supported? I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Nandita Sharma about nation-states and nationalisms coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. No doubt some of us would like to see a world without nationalisms, without those nationalist sentiments that spur people to do ugly, violent things. But what about a world without nations? Should the nation-state form of sovereignty be dispensed with as well? The question might sound weird. We're so used to thinking in terms of national identities, institutions, and boundaries. But according to Nandita Sharma, the nation-state became the dominant form of state power only in the mid-20th century. In her book, Home Rule, Sharma brings to light the exclusions inherent in all nationalist politics, exclusions dictated by considerations of who does and does not belong to the nation. Too often, only people deemed to have a primordial relationship with a place are considered its rightful inhabitants. Nandita Sharma is professor of sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and an active member of several social movements, including the No Borders Movement and movements struggling for the commons. Her most recent book is Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. When Nandita and I connected recently, I asked why her book is called Home Rule. It's called home rule because home rule literally means the rule of the people who feel they belong in a certain place. And I set out to question that assumption. And I also set out to really investigate the consequences that that assumption has had on our politics Um, particularly in regards to our ideas of people who move, uh, who are not able to stay in one place. Right, and therefore the distinction you suggest, I think that you want to argue against, but the distinction that you suggest in the title of your book, the subtitle, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. So natives would you say, are people you define as people who think they belong or who in fact belong to a certain geographical location? That's right. Uh, I go a bit further than that by examining the source of those ideas of native belonging. Uh, We use the word native in a very offhand manner, um, but we all agree that something or someone who is native belongs in the place where they're found or, or belongs to a particular land slash territory that they claim as theirs. Um, but I really wanted to interrogate th- that assumption again, um, first of all, to identify it as an idea that uh, has a social basis rather than some kind of natural basis. And I wanted to understand who the native is juxtaposed against because it does operate in a kind of relational manner, right? If if someone is native, um, then someone else is not. Uh, And the person who is the quintessential not native in our world today is the person who gets categorized by states, uh, by people as a migrant. And we'll talk in some depth about the treatment of an attitude taken toward migrants by natives. Uh, But let's stick with natives. And you mention in your book what the term native meant back in the imperial era, in the time of empires, when there were imperial powers and colonies. What did the term native mean back then? 
The term native in the age of empires meant someone who was colonized. It was an imperial state category used to position and identify those who were people living in the places that the colonies were formed from. Um, and they were juxtaposed at that time, the juxtaposition to the native, the colonized person was the European, right? So the, the social idea and category of European came along to really describe the person who was not native. So at that moment, native was a category of subordination. You write that in some colonies in Asia and Africa in the mid 19th century, a distinction was made between two kinds of natives, indigenous natives and migrant natives. Tell us about that. Yeah, I really learned a lot from Mahmoud Mamdani on this topic. And what I came to understand is that in the mid 19th century, as various European empires, beginning with the largest uh, at the time, the British Empire, um, became very concerned about the opposition that was coming from the colonized natives against their imperial rule. And one of the ways that they tried to stave off uh, a successful revolt uh, was to further divide the natives, right? So the natives had already been divided from those who got categorized as Europeans. Um, so that bifurcation was already made. Um, a further bifurcation was made as European imperial powers um, became very interested in separating the natives from one another. Now, divide and conquer strategies are an age-old method of imperial rule, right? It didn't begin in the 15th or 16th century with European empires. But the ways that the European empires uh, in the mid-19th century went about it was to say that one group of natives in any particular colony were the indigenous natives, right? By which they meant that these people have never moved. These are the quote unquote real natives of the place. They are the indigenous natives. And these other natives um, that exist in this place are, you know, they're still natives because they're still colonized, but they are from somewhere else. They are migrant natives. And that bifurcation was not just in name alone, it also was enshrined uh, in the ways that these two now two different groups of colonized natives were treated by the empire. The indigenous natives were given often invented indigenous leaders who then were given the power to distribute access to land, uh, distribute access to resources uh, that were defined as only belonging to the indigenous natives. Um, whereas migrant natives were cut out from that program. But at the same time, these so-called migrant natives were understood by European empires as somehow, you know, more quote unquote advanced uh, and therefore more able to participate in market relationships. So we had this bifurcation of indigenous natives and migrant natives with one, the indigenous natives given more access to land and the other, the migrant natives being given more access to markets. And what the, what it accomplished, of course, was exactly what the empires had hoped, which is a huge division in uh, the understanding, the everyday lived experience of the colonized natives, however they were defined, whether they were defined as indigenous or migrant, and that successfully diminished the opposition to the empires. And so the empires continued for another full century. Empires gave way in the era of decolonization. You noted in your book that the form of state power shifted from the imperial form to the national form. When did that shift take place and what were its contours? It began fitfully in the mid to late 19th century and it began in the Americas. 
it was consolidated and became the dominant form, like the, the shift from imperial states to nation states became solidified uh, and the nation state became the dominant form of state power after World War II, really after the 1960s. So it's a much more recent development than we've normally t um, been taught. Uh, in the mid to late 19th century in the Americas, what we saw was the formation of the world's first nation states. Um, and by that, I mean a state whose you know, everyday assumption of power was based on a national form of state power and not an imperial form. And one of the key distinctions that I make in my book um, between imperial states and nation states is how they govern people's mobility. Imperial states were mostly interested when they governed people's mobility in not allowing people to exit or escape state territories, right? They were most interested in keeping people in, and they were also very interested in getting more people in, right? They were interested in bringing people in through, for example, the slave trade, through the quote-unquote coolie trade that followed the slave trade. Um, through um, various mass migrations, for example, from Europe. Nation states were mostly uninterested in exit controls. You know, they didn't mind if you left, but they were very interested in who got in and under what conditions were they admitted. So nation states, the formation of nation states is when we see the first systematic implementation of immigration controls. So we can most clearly see the shift from imperial state power to nation state power with the advent of immigration controls. And the first immigration controls uh, in a systematic manner were in the Americas in the mid to late 19th century, starting with Peru, 1863, followed by the United States, 1875. Her name is Nandita Sharma. She is professor of sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We are talking about her book, Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Why were nation states, unlike imperial states, so interested in restricting immigration? That is, so tied apparently to the principle of excluding people, or at least the power to exclude. The reason uh, that nation states are so were and are uh, getting even worse at restricting and regulating people's entry into their state territories is because nation states had a very different idea of the political community then did empires, then did imperial states. Um, so that was the big shift, right? Who is a member of the political community? Empires, um, all empires always imagined that they could one day rule the world, right? That they could keep expanding, their territories could keep expanding to encompass more and more land and more and more of the life, including people on that land as theirs. So nation states, in contrast to empires, had a very different sense of the political community. And as you say, it was one based on exclusion. Na you know, the national form of political community always imagines itself as limited, in contrast to empires that imagine themselves as the whole world, you know, possibly. Nations always imagine themselves as a limited community, and of course, this is stemming from the insights of uh, a very important theorist on nationalism, Benedict Anderson. So nations imagine that there's a specific group of people with specific characteristics, often racialized, of who is a member of the nation. And so the national form of state power is very much beholden to making a distinction between who is a member of the nation and who is not. And immigration controls are a key and perhaps central mechanism by which to regulate 
membership in the nation and therefore in the national political community. So yes, absolutely, each and every nation state is based on exclusionary principles and I would argue on racist exclusionary principles because the idea of the nation is an idea of the people with a capital P and that idea of the people is one based on a shared history, on a shared even ancestry or genealogy, right? So you've got those ideas of blood and it's based on the idea that this particular people with a capital P belongs in a particular place. So you get this idea of blood attached to ideas of land or soil, and you've got the blood and soil mixture that we know is so toxic. We might look back to the founding of the United Nations and the charter, the founding charter of that organization in 1945, and applaud its insistence on people's right to self-determination, right? So we hear this a lot even today, of course, national self-determination, people's ability to determine themselves in the context of a, of a nation state or maybe even a nation within a country. So one might think of uh, indigenous tribes, for example. And yet you say that hostility to migrants was baked into the UN founding charter. How so? The UN founding charter with its principle that all people, which means all people who can organize themselves into a nation, uh, which depends on having a particular territory for that people, all people have a right to self-determination. Now, what happens if you're a person who is not a member of the people uh, in the places that you are living and working in. Um, so all nations, every single nation in the world has people living and working in it who are not regarded as members of the nation. That might be in a, in a legal sense, right? They're not given citizenship or permanent residency in that nation state or else they're socially regarded as foreigners, right? As outsiders, right? You may have citizenship, but we don't really think you belong, which is a, again, a, you know, often as a result of racism. So there's no place in the current system, in the current global order of nation states for those people who are not a member of the people um, who are being granted self-determination. If we add into that mix, right, that if you're not regarded or legally classified as a member of the nation, on top of the fact that each nation state kind of guards itself, right, limits itself by putting up uh, immigration controls and regulations, if not actual physical barriers like walls between themselves and those who they regard as outsiders, um, if we add those two things together, then there's no place in this world for people who leave whatever place they are told they belong in and go to somewhere else, right? They are then left, you know, left at the whims of nation states, of those people who feel themselves to be full-fledged national members of society. They're left at their whims, like, do we want to welcome them? Do we not want to welcome them? How many should we let in? Um, should we let any of them in? What, well, how should we categorize them when they get here? Should they be permanent residents? Should they be temporary foreign workers? Should they be quote unquote illegals? So all the power in this system is granted to the nation state and those people who imagine themselves as members of the nation to have power over those of us who are regarded as outsiders. So there's no place in this world for people who move or who want to move or need to move or have to move. Is this worldview, is this attitude baked into nationalism of any stripe? In other words, can nationalism exist apart from an emphasis on the native over the migrant? Or are you saying that nationalisms of any kind are tainted by 
this rejection of the migrant, this desire to exclude, to identify and to exclude migrants? I do argue that all nationalisms are a problem, that all nations, you know, because they're imagining themselves as a specific group of people, all nations have a built-in tendency to regard those who are not members of the nation as a problem. You know, let me go back to the United States. As you mentioned earlier, the United States, as we know, has multiple uh, groups within it claiming nationhood, right? We've got the official state nationalism of the United States, right? This is, this is U.S. territory. We know that white supremacy is a foundational tenet of, of the idea of the nation that the United States purportedly represents. Um, but within that, you've got you know, people who are um, arguing that they are the real indigenous you know, nations of this place. And within those nations, there is also, you know, they are obviously oppressed. Uh, they are clearly subordinated. They are clearly some of the most exploited, uh, impoverished people living within the United States. However, within those native nations in the United States, within those indigenous nations in the United States is the same process taking place, right? The definition of who really belongs and who doesn't. And of course, it is by no means the equivalent of what the United States is capable of doing. But one example that comes to the forefront is what happened with the Cherokee Nation recently, right? The Cherokee Nation had entered into a treaty with the United States forcibly, but, you know, forced upon them by the United States to turn those people that the Cherokee Nation had brought with them on the Trail of Tears from the southeastern part of the, what is now the United States to Oklahoma, uh, those people that the Cherokee Nation had held as slaves, uh, those black people that the Cherokee Nation had held as slaves, the United States insisted had to be given the status of citizens of the Cherokee Nation once they settled in Oklahoma. Recently, the Cherokee Nation wanted to expel the descendants of those enslaved people who had become citizens of the Cherokee Nation from membership in the contemporary Cherokee Nation because it was said that they did not share Cherokee blood right? They did not share Cherokee ancestorship, that they were outsiders from the beginning in the Cherokee Nation, that their formal citizenship in the Cherokee Nation was a false one because they weren't real members of the Cherokee Nation. So that same process, of course, is not equivalent to the enormous violence done by the United States. But from the perspective of the descendants of the people that the Cherokee Nation held as slaves and who were brought in as citizens, that is an incredibly violent act of expulsion, of exclusion. So that principle of who really belongs, who doesn't belong, is baked into any political community that is founded on this exclusionary principle of nationhood. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Nandita Sharma is an activist scholar who teaches sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's an active member of several social movements, including the No Borders Movement and movements struggling for the commons. We are talking about her latest book. It's called Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants it's published by Duke University Press. Right, and in relation to uh, what you just said, there are times, uh, and it doesn't happen everywhere, and you make that clear. I mean, you know, you're, you're not saying all indigenous movements do this or all indigenous uh, peoples do this, but, but there is a tendency uh, among some movements for native sovereignty to, when they look at 
and try and identify the settler colonist, the, the person, the people who have oppressed them, uh, whereas in the past they might have seen them as, as all white, as these are white folks of European descent who've come in and who have done great violence and harm to us and we have to react against it to remove the whiteness from the settler colonist designation, their understanding of who the settler colonist is. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, the removal of white from the you know, historical concept of white settler colonialism is something that's been taking place really since the 1980s. And it's a very disturbing move. Um, and what's happened is a, a further limiting of the idea of societal membership, a further hardening of nationalism so that if you are not a native, if you are not a member of the nation, you are the only other thing that you can be is a colonizer. And it's a very troubling move because incorporated into the idea of settler colonialism today is everyone who is not a member of an indigenous group claiming uh, a particular territory. So that includes people who were brought here as enslaved people, uh, people who came here as indentured servants, um, people who come as refugees, as people looking for a new livelihood, as people moving, right? So again, this hardening of nationalism where movement, where human movement, human migration becomes nothing less than colonialism, right? So if we go back to the earlier point that bred into the international system of national sovereignty is hostility to the migrant, right? What we see in this expansion of the idea of settler colonialism to include every single person who is not native, regardless of the enormous violence that they themselves experienced in how they got to the places that they live in, um, is, is a hardening of that principle, right? That we are hostile to anyone who is not a member, who is not a native member of the nation. And what that does, which is most troubling to me, is that it reduces colonialism to simply people moving, right? That simply by being quote unquote out of place, right? You're no longer in your native place. You've left your native place and you've come to you know, quote unquote, someone else's native place, just that act in and of itself is seen as colonization. And not only is that historically inaccurate, uh, but it's also politically dangerous, right? It's historically inaccurate because of course, human beings have been moving ever since there have been human beings, right? We know that human beings have moved around this entire planet, uh, making, you know, life on it as they go. Uh, so human mobility in and of itself is not colonization. Uh, but it's also very politically dangerous to say that anyone who is not a native member of the nation is by virtue of not being native, a colonizer is that we live in a world where colonization has been delegitimized, right? To, to say that someone is a colonizer is to say that they are a perpetrator of violence and the violence that can be done to them in the name of anti-colonialism is fully justified and fully legitimated, right? That's the kind of post-colonial new world order that we live in, right? We, we understand colonialism to be delegitimate we understand nationalism to be legitimate. So when we have a nationalist response to some group of people who, are, who can be categorized as colonizers, the violence that is done to that group of people is justified and even turns into something that's unpolitical. It's just natural. It's called for. You know, what I write about in the book Home Rule is that 
some of the most violent acts in our world today are done in the name of native people, people who imagine themselves as native enacting violence against people that they classify as migrants, right, as colonizers. And in your book, Home Rule, you do give examples of this kind of dynamic, this kind of anti-migrant violence. What are some of the more egregious or well-known cases? So some of the examples that I give in my book include, for instance, the Rwandan genocide, where the Hutus saw themselves as the natives who were being colonized, and they explicitly said this, colonized by the Tutsis, right? And so the violence that was done to the Tutsis was done in the name of anti-colonialism. And of course, you know, over 800,000 Tutsis lost their lives, as well as Hutus who um, refused to go along with that kind of political framework. Um, we see that framework happening in Myanmar, right, with the Rohingya, uh, who were classified by Burmese nationalists as Bengali migrants, right, as colonizers in Burma, um, colonizing the native Burmese. And so the enormous violence that was done to Rohingya people, you know, the subjects of one of the most recent genocides in the world, you know, the burning and looting of Rohingya homes and um, businesses, the internment of Rohingya people into what has been classified as concentration camps, the expulsion, right, through violence of Rohingya people, over a million Rohingya people have been forced to flee Myanmar uh, in the name of decolonization, in the name of defending Burmese indigeneity, right, that these are people who don't belong here and we have every right as indigenous people to expel them, right, because that's what anti-colonialism is in the kind of nationalist version of decolonization. Nandita Sharma, sociology professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, joins us on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. Well, speaking of uh, anti-colonial struggles and sentiments, you know, the anti-colonial struggles that paved the way for the you know, three dozen new nation states in Africa and Asia being able to achieve either independence or some kind of significant autonomy from imperial states in the mid 20th century, you know, from like uh, 1945, the end of World War II until about 1960. Those anti-colonial struggles took place under the, the mantra, the rallying cry of national self-liberation. And a lot of people would say, well, well, that's great. I mean, that's that's the logical place to focus one's energy and rhetoric on, that we deserve, the, the countries that were colonized, uh, we deserve our own nation so that we can do what we want and we can act independently of an outside oppressor. You find that problematic in what ways do you find that problematic, given your understanding of nation states and the priorities nation states assign and your understanding of nationalisms? Part of the domination of nationalism as a political framework today is the idea that achieving national sovereignty is tantamount to achieving decolonization. And one of the central arguments that I make in this book is that national sovereignty is not the equivalent of decolonization. Um, one of the ways that I make that argument is to demonstrate that nationalism and the call for national sovereignty was not the only form that anti-colonial movements took. There were other ways that people fought against imperial rule other than saying that we want our own national sovereignty, we want our own territorial borders, we want our own immigration controls, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the national form of decolonization, the national form of anti-colonial movements done in the guise of national liberation is the one that won out. And it won out for several reasons. 
one of the most undiscussed aspects of the victory of nationalism as the form that anti-colonial movements took is the United States. We tend to think, for example, um, of the United Nations Charter that all people have a right to national self-determination as a victory of the colonized, right? As a victory of colonized people standing up for themselves and saying, we are now equal members of this you know, international community of nations. But the reality is that the United States was one of the instigators, of course, was one of the founders, but one of the instigators of that idea of all people deserving national sovereignty. So let me just do a little bit of historical background here. After World War I, when the League of Nations was established, people in the colonies, colonized people, right, the natives, were not understood to be people, not understood to be nations, um, and therefore not able to assert sovereignty. The idea, the mantlehood of nation was really reserved for European metropoles of empires and certain uh, nation states like the United States, Canada, etc. And that became a huge rallying cry for nationalists in the colonies, right? And so the rallying cry was like, we're nations too, right? We too should have national sovereignty. So that spurred on this kind of nationalist politics in between World War I and World War II across the colonies. But another thing that happened is that in 1941, the United States signed a treaty with Britain, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met in Newfoundland and signed the Atlantic Charter in 1941, which was a massive shift in the kind of approach that empires had taken to date, right? In contrast to the League of Nations approach, where the colonies had no right to sovereignty or self-determination. Now the United States was arguing that at the end of World War II, Britain, the largest empire at that time, would agree that all people, with a capital P, all people who could organize themselves into nations would have the right to self-determination. And of course, Britain went kicking and screaming into the signing ceremony because it recognized that signing this charter meant the end of its empire. And one might then applaud the U.S. insistence on national self-determination to replace a world of imperial states and colonies. Does the U.S. deserve praise for this? Absolutely not. Uh, The U.S desire to have national sovereignty be recognized for colonized people had nothing to do with trying to end the actual practices of colonization. It only had to do with changing the political order in which the United States operated. So it was wholly, the United States was wholly uninterested in ending the practices of exploitation. It was uninterested in ending the practices of expropriation or extraction. It was uninterested in ending the practices of racism, of denigration. But what it was interested in doing was entering into markets that had previously been closed to capitalists based in the United States because those markets belong to various empires. So the United States knew that in order to expand its power, in order to expand its political influence, it would need to see the end of those imperial economies and therefore the end of imperial state power. So after World War II, of course, the United States got its way. And what we saw after World War II was the application of the of the Atlantic Charter in full force. Um, capitalism expanded, right? What we tend to think of after World War II as many of these colonies became independent nationally sovereign states was 
oh, this is a form of freedom, right? This is, this is decolonization. But in fact, what it was, was an expansion of capitalism. And it expanded through the national form of state power. The United States, for example, became the world hegemon after World War II, in part by using its enormous financial power after World War II to enter into what were nominally independent sovereign states. So national sovereignty did not protect people from the same set of practices, expropriation, exploitation, uh, that were prevalent during the age of empires. But in fact, those practices intensified. So for example, the Indian now national sovereign state took more land away from people in India in the name of development, right? We need to build a hydroelectric dam to provide electricity to factories in the city so that we can modernize and you know, sell you products uh, instead of the British selling you products. Uh, and so more land was taken away from people. More people were forced to flee the countryside into urban uh, slums. So what people got in the national sovereign states did not feel like decolonization. And that's really the tragedy of the current system. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, Nandita Sharma is my guest. She is a professor of sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her first book was Home Economics, Nationalism and the Making of, quote, Migrant Workers, close quote, in Canada. And we are talking about her most recent book, Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. So it it sounds like uh, from what you're saying, Nandita, is that we need to discard national liberation projects or projects that are framed in that way because of uh, what nations do and nationalisms do in terms of separating, for example, natives uh, who are seen as, you know, the rightful people in a particular territory and migrants who are are not uh, welcome, who are seen as a threat. Is that correct that this whole idea of national liberation projects in whatever guises is is flawed and we need to rethink our demands, rethink the path toward uh, a liberatory society? Well, what we've gotten is a world of nation states today. We were promised, those of us who supported anti-colonial movements, those of us who got national sovereignty, those of us who are still fighting for national sovereignty of quote unquote our own, we need to be able to distinguish what we wanted and what we got. Right. What we wanted was a world in which we got our land back. We got the fruits of our own labor. We got dignity and respect. And we got none of that. Right. We live in a world today that we have 75 years or so of experience of what national sovereignty got us. And we can see very clearly that the world that we live in today is not a world that is capable of sustaining life. It's not a world without expropriation, exploitation, denigration, racism, destruction. It's exactly the opposite. So yes, I do believe we need to rethink what we want. I do think that the national form of struggle, the national liberation form of struggle needs to be rejected, that it is fundamentally, definitionally incapable of achieving what it promises. And in actuality, what it achieves is an intensification of violence. And this goes back to, you know, our earlier discussion that 
the very idea of organizing ourselves into nations is something that depends on our making borders around the group that is supposed to have rights, that is supposed to have land, that is supposed to have dignity and respect, um, and wall it off from all others. But that's not the world that we live in, right? Can we create a world that reflects politically the world that we actually live in? Because the world that we actually live in is a world of deep connections. Each and every one of us is connected to people across this planet in ways uh, that are both inescapable and to be desired, right? To be celebrated. Today, we live in a world where those connections are very much uh, mismatched, right? So some of us get the vast you know, majority of the world's resources and wealth, and the, the majority of the world's people get a, a fraction of, of that, right? We need to change that up. We need to recognize that organizing the world as separate nation states not only denies the connections that we actually have to one another, but actually organizes those connections in such a way that ensures enormous disparities in wealth, in power, in peace. So we really do need a massive shakeup. And I think we need to start with reimagining who we think we are, reimagining the political community. What, what should a political community that is not based on exclusion, but based on connection actually look like. And one thing that I know from history uh, and from the current reality is that world does not look like a world of nation states. Anandita Sharma, you work inside a number of social movements, including the No Borders movement, or I should say movements. So is No Borders, No Boundaries a, a way to escape or eliminate the the nationalisms that you speak of and write about? I believe that the only way that we're going to be able to live in a world without disparities, in a world where we have access to the land and the air and water we need to live well, uh, is to recognize that that world is at the scale of our planet. We have been brought together more and more and more over the centuries. We can't simply deny that reality and try and hive ourselves back into some kind of imagined past where we were, you know, living in isolation from all others. Because not only is that a, is that a false notion of the past, uh, but that false notion of the past does a great deal of violence to those people today who are moving. So yes, absolutely, the recognition of the freedom of mobility, the freedom of people to move as they see that they need to or want to, must become a fundamental part of our notion of freedom writ large. The freedom to move is the freedom to escape untenable situations. The freedom to move is the freedom to belong to where you actually live. And that really is the fundamental principle of no border movements is the freedom to reject the borders that have been put into place in order to separate us, to undo the divisions that were started by imperial states, hardened by national states, hardened further by ideas of native sovereignty, that only the natives um, have any right to a particular place. Rejecting those borders is, the, I think, the starting point of building a world that is truly shared. And, you know, we've inherited, each and every one of us have inherited a planet at the edge of collapse right? Life on this planet is being severely threatened by the climate catastrophe. The climate catastrophe is in part a 
a catastrophe of nationalism, right? A catastrophe of the failure to think at a planetary scale. So as people are going to need to move at ever larger scales, we are entering into a political period of hardening nationalisms, and that's a, that's a disaster waiting to happen. So at a period of climate catastrophe, when more and more living beings, whether they're human beings, they're other animals, other plants, right? All of those beings are on the move right now. Plants are moving, humans are moving, other animals are moving, and what they are all encountering is this nationalist notion that as they move, they are invaders, they are colonizers, they need to be eradicated, they need to be regulated. And we need to shift that understanding if we are not to enter into a period of political fascism that says that only the people who belong here uh, have any right to the life of the place. So I do believe that a no borders perspective is a way out of the mess that we're in right now because the no borders movements is perhaps one of the central movements whose core is a rejection of nationalism. Nandita Sharma, activist scholar, sociology professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We've been talking about her most recent book, Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants, published by Duke University Press. Her name is spelled N-A-N-D-I-T-A, and then Sharma, S-H-A-R-M-A. Nandita, thanks so much for writing this book and for your other work and for joining us today. Thank you, CS. It was my pleasure. And that program first aired on March 28th of this year. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 